Welcome to the Faith First Advisor podcast, where host and financial advisor Eric Schrum helps Christians align their faith with their finances. To explore more about everything it means to be a steward with the God has given you, visit thefaithfirstadvisor.com. If you would like to explore working with Eric to align your money and investments with your faith, visit shrumpw.com slash faith. That's S-C-H-R-U-M-P-W dot com slash faith. And so God has, has used it a lot. Um, and it just it provides just a connection. And I think people sometimes, um, particularly people of faith, uh, will, will trust me so much more when they know that God is guiding my hands. It just helps them know like, okay, I know God's got me, but when I know God's also got my surgeon, I'm like, God's double got me. You know, <laughs> So it just really helps them a lot. So yeah. I, I enjoy that aspect of what I can see people that have like common faith. It's like, all right. This is, this is where the rubber meets the road, you know, so it's good. Welcome to the Faith First Advisor Podcast. I'm your host, Eric Shrum, and today we get to speak with Dr. Jason Mizell. Dr. Mizell is a colorectal surgeon at the University of Arkansas for medical sciences. In addition to performing surgery, Dr. Mizell also teaches a financial literacy course to medical students and has been called a pioneer of financial literacy and medicine by the White Coat Investor. I thoroughly enjoyed speaking with Dr. Jason, and I'm excited to share today's episode with you. As a reminder, if you enjoyed today's episode and would like to explore working with me to align your investing with your faith, email eric at shrumpw.com. That's S-C-H-R-U-M-P-W.com or consider leaving a review on iTunes. Without further ado, guys, here's Dr. Jason Mizell. Dr. Jason Mizell, welcome to the Faith First Advisor Podcast. It's great to have you on board. Thank you so much. I am so excited about what you're, you're doing here and, and ready to see this uh, take off and do great things. So thank you for the opportunity. I'm honored. Yeah. Yeah, thanks. I appreciate you saying that. And, you know, our, our listeners know a little bit about you uh, already. So let's just jump in. And I, I'd love to hear and understand how you first came to faith in Jesus. And, and that's kind of what, why we're here, right? And the why behind what we do. So how did that story unfold for you? Yeah, so um, I, I grew up very small, uh, tiny town in North Louisiana. And uh, across the the back pasture, you could see my home church, uh, which my grandfather went to and my dad and, and all that sort of wow. stuff. So um, a good Sunday was about 85 people. You know, if we did sort of a pack a pew Sunday, we might get a triple digits, um, wow. but very, very small uh, church. And, um, but it was, it was good. And, and that was really where um, I was sort of beginning to hear the gospel and God began to use those messages um, just to prick my heart. And so I guess about um, probably late, six-year-old, early seven, uh, was when I kind of started asking questions. My um, older sister became a believer around that time, and uh, that really prompted a lot more questions. So uh, my mom was really my go-to on that. My my dad um, really is is more of a sort of go-to-church-every-Sunday kind of guy, but as far as active right. faith, um, it, it's been sort of questionable through the years. And so my mom was always my go-to, and uh, she even taught me my, my Sunday school class for, for several years. Wow. And so she really walked me through those questions early on and helped me um, you know, to get a real understanding of what I was, what I was getting into, so to speak, yeah. and really what true faith really was. And uh, so at seven years old is when I became a believer. And uh, so I was ve- I'm very thankful um, for it being that young and mm-hmm. God really 
kept me close to his side for all those years during junior high and high school and years that sometimes can be a little sketchy and even college. And no doubt. so, so I, I, um, seven years old, but really I would say, um, when I hit college was where God really lit a fire in my heart. I, mm. the summer between my, um, senior year of high school and then first year of college that summer, I can just remember God just putting a, a real desire in my heart for his word and really began to, to really hear, make a lot of those passages really stand out. And so that mm-hmm. summer, I can remember a few times my mom having to come in late at night, like, go ahead, go to bed. It's time to go to bed, you know, but I just, it was weird. I mean, it sounds, uh, it sounds like sort of hokey, uh, but it was just that God was, had gripped my heart and just really made me begin to love his word. Uh, yeah, during cur- that I carried through college. I'm curious with that. Was it just something that God placed on you? Was there some kind of event that triggered that? That's very interesting. Yeah, so that's, uh, I would say yes to both of those. Some of those that God was just stirring my heart. But at the same time, also, um, I had been dating a girl for about two years and um, began to feel that summer that I, that we should end the relationship. Mm. And it was super weird, came out of nowhere. We had a good relationship. She was a believer and great families. I mean, everything just seemed from the outside very rosy, but really God began to really give me a sense of, lack of affections uh, for her, which was super weird. Um, and, and so that, that summer, really, God taught me um, that he controls emotions, he controls affections, he controls feelings, and he controls, you know, the sun, moon, and stars. So right. it helped me see that God is a very, like, down-in-the-weeds sort of God, where he really gets down in the, the depths of our hearts and, yeah. and can give us uh, emotions that we aren't really looking for. And so part of my initial searching was to try to make that feeling go away, <laughs> honestly. <laughs> Uh, because I didn't want to have to end the relationship. But then over time, God began to help me see why I should. Mm-hmm. And and so that that was sort of the catalyst, I guess. But okay. then once God lit a fire in my heart, then it just continued to have a sort of feedback loop of of positive influence for you know months and years to where I just the the craving just wasn't like insatiable. It just kept kept growing. Wow. Let's put a pin in that that phase of your life in college and back up a little bit. When did this desire to become a doctor, a surgeon, and then a specialty in colon rectal surgery, how did that evolve in your life? Was it something you always wanted to, to, uh, to do? Because I understand you grew up in a small town and yeah. you know, how did that end up materializing for you, that passion? Yeah. So my, my mom didn't uh, work. She just stayed at home with my sister and I, my dad worked in the oil field, which a lot of people from Louisiana do. And Mm. he would, he would work a week in the Gulf and then um, come home for a week. And so he went to college, but his, his degree was in dairy science. And because my grandfather owned a a pretty good size farm in North Mm. Louisiana. So the plan was for him to take that over and, but nobody in medicine. Right. I, I liked biology. I grew up kind of hunting and fishing and all that sort of stuff. So sure. I went to college initially thinking I was going to do biomedical engineering. Um, but when I got there, I saw that you had to start off in calculus and I'd never taken calculus because my <laughs> high school education was terrible. So my one taking that off the table because I don't know the first thing about calculus. So then I was just left with biology. So right. I knew from talking with people that with if you want to go to seminary, you can either do a general degree, you can do basically whatever, mm. or if you want to go to med school, you generally do biology. And so, right. so I said, well, I'll do biology to leave my, my path open to whatever God calls. And honestly, until my junior year, I didn't know uh, what junior year of college, uh, third year of college, what path God had for me, because mm. during your, your third year, usually is where you take the MCAT, the medical college admissions right. test. And, mm. 
So I took the test thinking if I do well, then I'll go to med school. If I don't, I'll just finish my biology degree and go to seminary and, and probably become a pastor. And so once I got my score back, it was decent enough to get to med school. And so that's really what led me down that path. But, you know, so many, so many people often, um, particularly in academics, they always talk, talk about having like a five and a 10 year plan and mm -hmm. really sort of, you know, trying to carve out or have a good idea of what long-term looks like. And I've never, never had that plan mm. of, I, I very much have just tried to focus on what God had for me at the moment. And it reminds me, reminds me a lot of like the disciples, you know, when Jesus called him, he's like, throw down your nets and follow me. And that was yeah. it. They got one step. And so that's yeah. really where, where God has had me a lot too. It's just that mm. one next step, not really knowing what was going to happen after that. And so med school then during my third year led to surgery. And then during my fifth year of surgery training, it led to colorectal. Okay. Um, and then at the very end of colorectal, it led to an academic colorectal position rather than like private practice. So right. on, I think on the surface, it can look more like uh, kind of last minute, you know, and sometimes <laughs> it kind of feels like that. <laughs> but at the same time, it's also um, I can look back and see a lot of moments where God um, really sort of grew my faith through yeah. those times. You know, the, I, I think about the Old Testament story where they you know, put the rock there and the Ebenezer and they would look back and be able to see what God had done. Yes. So I think that's yes. what a lot of those moments are for me is looking back and say, God took care of me here, 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 here. And so I can trust him with the future. Yeah, that's fantastic. And, and where did you go to school? Uh, so um, my high school was in a very tiny town. My, my high school class was the biggest we'd ever had, which was 55. Wow. And uh, then I went to Louisiana tech for undergraduate. Okay. That's where my dad went. Okay. And he said, you're, you're going to Louisiana tech. So I was like, okay, fine. <laughs> so I did. <laughs> And then it was LSU for medical school and stayed at LSU for residency and then did one year of extra training uh, at Baylor in Dallas uh, to specialize in colorectal and then came to Little Rock. Okay. And is that where the Robertsons, like Phil and, and uh, Willie Robertson went? Yeah. Okay. So that, those right? guys were in uh, kind of the Monroe area, which is um, where the university, it's uh, used to be called um, Northeast, but now it's called ULM. Okay. Um, but there's a university there in Monroe. Uh, which is about 30 to 40 minutes um, east of Ruston, uh, which is where Louisiana Tech is. So gotcha. we didn't really know of them. We knew of their duck calls uh, being kind of a hunter. <laughs> everybody knew about that. But as far as like them being you know, remotely famous, nobody knew about that. They just, right. you know, they talk about, you know, in the hunting circles, but that's about it. So. <laughs> We're going to get into the financial side, but I got to, I got to dig a little bit deeper. You're talking about the dunk duck calls and the hunting. And I heard on another podcast, the scope of practice podcast you did guys search for that podcast. Really awesome interview with, uh, with Jason here. Um, but you had a, an interesting job growing up, right? With what, what were you shooting crows for money or something? <laughs> yeah. So, um, so, you know, the, when the farming thing, uh, fell through, my grandfather sold the farm, we were left with a lot of empty land. And so uh, that land would then be rented out to people who would either plant sweet potatoes or cotton or watermelons, various different things through the years. And so one of the guys who planted watermelons, uh, my job was to ride around on my four-wheeler and keep the varmints out, which is kind of what you can call anything that damages the crop. But the truth is, it's crows, it's coyotes, it's deer. Okay. So my dad loved the fact that I was able to uh, legally spotlight to keep the varmints out. But, you know, <laughs> yeah. so, but I would drive around on my four-wheeler and like, shoot crows for, for $5 an hour. And then sometimes wow. it just meant me sitting out in the middle of the field, just sitting there kind of twiddling my thumbs because yeah. if you're 
you're just there. It keeps the crows out. So you know, it's a little bit odd, but it, that sounds like a thing. pretty fun, uh, teenage boy job there. I Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. It's after that, my next job was working, uh, in the oil field for about the same amount. And the, the workload there was about 50 times harder. So I was really uh, lamenting my crow shooting days <laughs> for fun <laughs> instead of screwing together pipe in an oil field. Yeah. Wow. So, I mean, this podcast is about helping people steward their money well, but I think stewardship goes even beyond that. And it's our time and our talent too, right? Yeah. So you graduate from, geez, I mean, there's so much training that goes into becoming a surgeon. Um, yeah. I think there's some doctors listening to this, I know, but uh, most people are not familiar with the medical side of things. But correct yeah. me if I'm wrong, but you have undergrad, MCAT, mm-hmm. uh, yeah. med school, residency, fellowship, and then you become the new guy, right? right? Uh, what was that like coming into this new intense profession Maybe we can touch on the implications of what it was like for you to grow up in kind of a more rural space and then be thrust into a job that you could make a lot of money in. And I'll I'll add on to make this a a long question here. Um, What did you learn about just kind of gritting through and hard work getting through medical school and, and that grind? Yeah, that's, that's a great question. And you're, you're right. I mean, you do, most people do four years of college and it's four years of med school and it was five years of surgery training and then a sixth year to specialize in colorectal. So, I mean, it, it adds up to be, you know, 14 years pretty, pretty quickly. And, um, and so it is long and it was, I think, as I mentioned earlier, God showed me only the next step helped me not get too overwhelmed. Um, because if he'd have shown me my freshman year of college, Hey, this is the beginning of a 14 year trek. I'm not sure I would have bought into it really that easily. Um, (laughs) And so just show me the next step. I'm like, okay, I can do four more years. Okay. I can do five more years. Okay. I can do one more year, you know? Um, so God, um, for lack of a better word, sort of strung me along there, but I think in a, in a good way. Um, and, and for me personally, like growing up in that sort of environment that I mentioned, uh, did teach me a lot about hard work. And so I think I was able to apply that to academics. Right. Um, but I, I have found recently um, that to some degree that those years of just grinding even whenever I didn't feel like it has to me personally actually been a little bit, um, I wouldn't say detrimental, but I've had to be careful because for so long, my, my emotions and my desires and my feelings really got pushed to the side. And it was, you do the job, you do what's best for patients, you do what's best for, you know, your grades so that you can get right. to the next step. And so I'm having, actually having a hard time now in my early forties of actually letting my feelings guide me a little bit more mm-hmm. because they've always been sort of a, a byproduct, you know? Right. And so I'm, I'm entering this phase of life now, like what do I really want to do rather than what do I have to do? Cause I'm, yeah. I'm getting out of that have to do stuff phase yeah. of life and it's great, but I'm almost like a, you know, a ship at sea without a sail. I'm kind of, I'm just floating along. I'm like, what do I do? And, and right. uh, so I had somebody tell me the other day that, you know, feelings are the, the sails in your boat and, um, and I need to, I need to develop some better sails. Uh, so <laughs> at one point, what served me very well now has been something I've got to just be a little more conscientious of. Yeah, no doubt. And as, uh, both being male, you know, I think that that's a little yeah. detriment too. And I was the same way with, uh, life. And really it was when I got married when, you know, my, my wife is big on, you know, these, uh, personality tests and understanding uh-huh. yourself, which is good. Right. But, she's asking me these questions about, you know, how I'm feeling and what does this mean? And it's like, (laughs) 
Jeez, yeah. I don't know, but uh-huh. I think that's that's part of being a full a full human. How God right. made us, no doubt. Um, so you're a surgeon. You are you know immersed into that, and that's a heavy workload to say the least. Uh, and somehow you became interested in personal finance and. You did a podcast with the White Coat Investor, who we're both fans of, and he went as far as to say, you are a pine, an academic pioneer of physician <laughs> financial literacy. Oh and for God. those who don't know, this is a big movement within the physician world, and it's pretty interesting. I've, I've dove into it myself and read up on it. Um, there's this big movement with physicians and financial um, education. How did you get involved in that, and where did that stem from? Yeah. Um, so I think that that stemmed from really, um, a need. And so, and and what I mean by that is, um, growing up, my, my dad was always an employee. So there was never really like an entrepreneurial spirit there. It was always like, I'm always subject to the boss giving me whatever they see fit. Mm. So I didn't really have, I knew how to balance a checkbook, but that was about it, you know, about really what the stock market man and stocks and bonds and all that kind of stuff. I had no exposure to that. And so, you know, nowhere in college, I take a finance class, med school never offers anything. And so when I finished finally that last year of training and started at UAMS, you know, I realized, okay, I'm, I'm making a decent salary now and I have to take responsibility for my family, but I don't know what that looks like mm-hmm. financially. I don't know how to plan for retirement. And I also have a very significant teaching role here at the university. And I don't want the people that I teach to be as ignorant as I am. So, right really it just started me on this path of a lot of self-education. I mean, really trying to maximize how much I was reading while still learning how to become a sur- an independent surgeon, you know? Yeah. And so there was that whole part of it, but, um, but really just trying to figure out what do people need to hear um, as future physicians and all, always with this sort of undercurrent for me personally of, I want to be a good steward of what God's given me right. and right. whether or not the people that I teach are, our believers or not, if God calls them to something one day, I want them to be in a financial position to where they can do what God calls them to do mm. um, and have the funds uh, however he wants to use them. And so it felt almost like a, a moral obligation as much as um, a, just a desire to, to teach and then to, to write my own ship, uh, for right. lack of a better word. So where did sense. you go for that initial education? Was it blogs, talking to people? Uh, yeah. So, I mean, I've just about, I feel like used almost every resource. So I, I started um, an audible subscription okay. and so I did the thing, you know, where you pay like $12 a month or whatever. And so it gives you a credit and if you don't use it, it just stacks up and I hate things going to waste. So I'm like, okay, I'm <laughs> forcing me to read a book a month. And it got to where I was reading much more than that, or at least listening. I call it reading, but it's listening, yeah, it counts. Um, but audible, uh, lots of podcasts, um, lots of Facebook groups, closed mm-hmm. Facebook groups that are out yeah. there for physicians and, and kind of high income earners. And just asking a lot of questions, uh, lots of just reading blogs, the white coat mm-hmm. investor, physician on fire, right. um, physician philosopher now is, is a big one out there. And so just reading those guys posts. Um, and then as I started taking over some of the lectures in my own course, when people would ask me questions that I wouldn't know, I'm like, oh gosh, let me go back and, and self-educate a little bit more. Right. And so that forces you to really make sure you're on top of your subject matter because you're about to teach it to a bunch of you know, pretty hungry, very smart individuals right. um, that tend to ask pretty detailed questions. So. And this spurred into this financial literacy. It's a, it's a class. It's for credit, right. correct? Um, yeah, that's correct. So tell us about that. And, and what do you guys, what are the topics that you teach in that class? 
Okay, so I started off, I uh, basically came to my chairman and had the idea of, of doing a curriculum. Uh, initially, it was with uh, people that were there at the university and in the business world okay. that um, were experts. And so I just kind of got them all together and created a curriculum and gave them some dates. And But then after a little while, I realized that um, some of them I could replace because they weren't engaging enough or, mm. or maybe I had self-educated enough by that point. Um, and so it ended up being about a 20 hour curriculum, uh, 20 content hours. Okay. And it's about 60% uh, personal finance, about 40% business. And so we cover things, some of which I would ask them. I do I always do a survey at the beginning of every year at the end and uh, ask them like, what do you feel like we covered that you agreed with? And what do you feel like we have not covered that you'd like to see and, you know, or you think would be good ideas to include. Right. So I'm always doing a little bit of quality improvement there, but it's things like personal stuff is estate planning, uh, renting versus buying a home, mm -hmm. um, retirement planning, budgeting, debt reduction, student loan payments, yeah. insurance. Uh, and then I have some panel discussions about, you know, tips from the uh, tricks from the trade, so to speak. Mm -hmm. um, and then, but then the business side of it is like avoiding malpractice, right. um, billing and coding, um, how to set up a practice, the electronic medical record, um, uh, this year, um, we or last year, we did a, a talk on recruitment. You know, so if somebody is coming to you wanting you to work for hospital XYZ, right. what do they already know that they haven't told you, and mm. what should you know to begin those negotiations and things like that? And so, wow. uh, so I say it's about about twenty hours, and uh, we have about our our med school class is uh, about one hundred and sixty students, and yeah. we average about one hundred and twenty of those one hundred and sixty take the course every year. Wow, is it voluntary? It is voluntary, but they, they wow. can get credit for it. Um, right. but, so it's totally elective, but it's the, it's the biggest elective on campus now. Um, wow. More people take this than anything else on campus. So Incredible. What a benefit and blessing that you're setting these kids up for. You know, I came out of college and went to work for um, a big, I, I won't name them on here, not that it's a, a bad story or anything, but a big <laughs> financial Wall Street firm. They set us up the first few weeks and we had to set up our 401k and all of that stuff. And I'm ashamed to say, but maybe I was working at this place. I had no clue what to do. I called my yeah. dad and I was like, what do I do setting this uh -huh. up? And it just shows that even in the financial world, you can get a finance degree, and, uh, you know, hopefully learn all of these right. theories and stuff. But when it comes down to like actually getting your own house in order, you don't know what to do. And, and I right. see that as such a value. What are, um, how do you approach investing? I, I want to touch on just a few of these topics and your thoughts yeah. on that. Um, investing, what do you believe is, is the right philosophy to take with that? What do you tell your students around that? Yeah, so that's, um, that's good. And there's, there's so much written about, you know, different methods of investing and what's best. And really with so many of my, uh, my trainees, the people that I'm teaching, um, there is not their expertise and, and so much of the jargon that you need to know to really have a detailed conversation. They don't know it at all. I mean, right. I was lecturing this morning to um, the gastroenterology uh, fellows that are in training and uh, some of the questions are, are very, very basic. And uh, last year I had a medical student that raised his question, uh, raised his hand halfway through the lecture on renting versus buying a home. Mm. And he said, I keep hearing you say this word mortgage. What does that mean exactly? Like what is a mortgage? <laughs> you know, so it's, it's, it's basic, basic terminology they don't know. And so mm -hmm. uh, what I typically tell them is I, I try to be very practical during my talks and I try mm -hmm. to be 
um, very, um, very simplistic. And so I don't cover details of active versus passive investing. Mm. I personally feel like passive is the way to go. And so I just tell them, look, if you are a resident at UAMS, what I would recommend is you sign up through our retirement plan through Fidelity. You go find a Vanguard target retirement, you know, 2050 fund, and you just invest in that. Mm, Truth of it is, is there other ways to do it? Sure. But for somebody that's trying to pass their internal medicine boards or their surgery boards or their, you know, fellow boards, they don't have time to learn all that. That's not what they need to be in their stage of life. And so Mm -hmm. if I can just get them to take 10% and stick it in a Vanguard fund and learn to live on less, uh, then I've accomplished my mission. And later on, if they want to self-educate about other ways to more actively invest or, you know, do speculative stuff, that's fine. But I try to keep it as simple as I can. And then I'll pull up like our HR website and say, here's the form. This is what it looks like. You put 10% in this box and then you go down you select this mutual fund or whatever. And so I really try to walk them through it because if I don't, if I keep it too philosophical, it's a waste of their time and and they're too busy to have wasted time. Yeah. Uh, So I I try to do that sort of stuff if that answers your question. That's great. I think that's great practical advice for any high earner listening right now. It's less about what you do as long as you're on the right side of you know, somewhat being wise with how you're investing and more about right. consistency and time and just put, putting in the, the dollars and sticking yeah. to a plan that's going to lead to success more than, you know, crazy investment philosophies. Right. Yeah. I always tell them that um, the good investing is boring and the retirement game is one, you know, they don't have to try to work the system. They're making yeah. the money. Just do let the process do its work. You know, like right. you don't have to, to try to find the next hot stock and you don't have to be talking in the locker room about what pharmaceutical company is going to release some med, <laughs> you know, you did buy the stock or whatever. It's like, don't yeah. do that. Just yeah. quit buying the boats and the houses whenever you've got $300,000 in student loan debt and retire at a comfortable age once you've done all the work, you know? Yeah. That's something I, I talk to clients a lot about. And, and many of these people would be deemed financially independent, right? But debt comes up and they say, hey, we want to buy that second home. We want to buy a car. What do we do as far as debt? What's your philosophy on that? Um, I, you know, I have thoughts around it, but I'm, I'm curious what your philosophy is and then how you talk to these students who are going to be coming out with sometimes multiple six figures of, of oh, debt. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, our average student graduates with with two hundred thousand um, in debt, and that's just wow. for med school. It's um, counting undergrad. I mean, I've seen five six hundred thousand uh, for a single student. You know, wow. for for um, counting undergraduate debt, and so it can be quite substantial. And so I tell them that with those sort of debt loads, that that is the priority. And and the white coat investor and those guys talk a lot about living like a resident. Yeah, and that's exactly what I told them this morning. Is even after they have finished their training living on a $60,000 salary for the next five, six, seven years, they need to keep living like their salary is only 60,000 and then take the rest of it and start crushing that student loan debt, start crushing that high interest credit card debt that they've got. Mm -hmm. They probably need to rent a home for the first little bit because their first job is usually fairly uncertain. Um, I've heard the statistic of 50% doctors leave their first job in the first two years. And so, so I, I don't, I don't know how accurate that is, but the, the concept remains of well, sometimes our first job isn't as rosy as we, as it seems. And so when you buy a house, you know, you'll never you know, recuperate those, those sunk costs. So right. In just a few years like that. Yeah. That's so, so interesting. 
Yeah. So I really try to really, really drive down that, that dad. And I tell him about, okay, you know, the Land Rover or the, you know, the vacation house, whatever you can have that at some point, but don't buy it one year out from your training, you know, take care of the debt. So you're comfortable and then it'll be okay later. Yeah. And I know that's something I've heard you talk about and other folks in the sphere, physician sphere talk about it. It's tough to, to uh, put yeah. up delay gratification oh, man, and, yeah. you know, these specialized education. And then you think you're, you're hitting the big, big boy salary. And right. it's like, wait, you know what? The wise move is to keep, keep living like a resident for yeah. a year or two more. Yeah. I mean, the thing is, if you get used to, you know, the Land Rover, whenever you're 31 years old, where do you go up from there? You know, like what is the next step? But if you're getting used to a used Toyota when you're 31 and you get all your debt paid off and you want to upgrade fine and then it's fun and cool and nice and neat. But when you have super high uh, fancy toys right from the beginning, then that increases and you get crazy expensive. So I just try to really, it's a a lot of my talks are actually more like behavioral control as much as they are, um, you know, in depths about interest rates and things like that. It's, mm. it's more of, of, of trying to manage expectations and say, I know you've been training for 14 years. I get it. I did it too, but just right. hang in there a little bit more and then it'll be okay. You know? <laughs> yeah. Let's, let's transition in how we're talking about that. Cause uh, I'm curious, what are your thoughts as someone with a believer with some authority behind uh, a lot of work done in the financial sphere and the spiritual side of things? What are your thoughts about high earners and, you know, saying, okay, now it's time to, to start buying some toys and maybe a big yeah. house. That's a tension that I struggle with in advising yeah. people. And it's like, well, what is the right balance between, you know, enjoying the blessings that, that money yes. can give as a tool, but also being a blessing to other, how do you think about that? Yeah. So, um, I, I think if you would have asked me that uh, six months ago, I probably would have answered it differently. So, right. so I, I, whenever I was in college, um, I began to follow um, John Piper and the Desiring God, the you know, pastor yeah. from, from Minneapolis. And, mm-hmm. and that, you know, he talks a lot about showing the supremacy of God often through, um, through suffering to some degree, but also showing that we don't need the fancy things because God is sufficient. You know, God is our joy right. and God is our right. hope. And, and so that, has been a lot of my, um, my heart's cry and, and sort of the, the mantra that I've lived by so much so that I think actually I have overshot to some degree and almost done like a, a self depravity sort of thing mm-hmm. and not allowed myself to enjoy to some degree. Yeah. Um, and so, um, I would say over the last probably six months, um, I have really tried to think through that quite a bit. Um, mm-hmm. I'm trying to think, I recently just finished this, this book, um, that, um, I'm blanking on the name. I'll think of it in a minute, but the book talks a lot about that. Um, that God created things of the earth for his, our enjoyment because yeah. they're often reflections of him. And so like right. God gave, um, things in scripture about honey to help mm-hmm. us understand sweetness. Right. And so we can understand who God is through tasting honey. Yeah. And we see what, what light is like because of the sun. And we see what, um, how sweet God is through drinking wine or whatever, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. And, and so it, it helped me so much to see that by enjoying things, if the heart is right, that all you're doing is, is loving God more. If, if the, right. the undercurrent always is, 
is to, to give God glory. Like mm-hmm. there's a time for suffering. There's a time for, for, for taking up your cross and following me, but there's also a, a excellent area in our lives for uh, enjoying his gifts. Mm-hmm. And, and so it's made me, I think a little bit less legalistic um, and made me a little bit more okay with maybe taking some vacations or just doing some things that are fun because mm-hmm. you can, you can enjoy a lot of God in those those things, um, the things of earth. That's the name of the book, the things okay. of earth. Um, it is, is incredibly good. And for somebody like me and my personality, I think maybe what has sort of been ingrained in me through my job, it has been incredibly freeing um, to say, it's okay to, to enjoy those, those gifts. They are gifts that God yeah. has given us. And, and you can experience more of God because of that gift. Yeah. And almost to the point he makes in the book of by depriving yourself of that gift, you're potentially robbing yourself of experiencing more of God. Right. Like, Okay. All right. So uh, it changed my focus. It changed my focus. So. Fantastic. I, that's going to be on my my reading list here coming up then. And I think that your answer and, and that wisdom is going to resonate with a lot of people listening because I, I know that is a question that I get a lot and, and I think about a lot personally yeah. as well. Uh, let's talk about giving and mentorship. I know those are two areas that are important to you. And let's start with the mentorship side. Can you Talk about what you guys have done as an active surgeon and an active teacher to bring people under your wing and, and how you kind of give through your time and, and yourselves. Yeah. Yeah. So um, there were there were times for me, um, you know, not really coming from great financial background um, where people were very kind with to me financially um, to help me do things. Like I remember one time I was able to go on a mission trip people in our church just gave the money to provide for everything. And we went to Mexico and the ticket and the whole works. And so that was a huge blessing for me. And God used that uh, in my heart for missions. Um, and so I've, I have often thought whenever I was kind of going through my training, like whenever I finally get to the point where I'm making money, I want to, I want to do that as well. I want to provide for people. And so we do our, our house. I mean, it, it factors in so many areas of life, but, but we have a decent sized house because my wife loves to host and she mm-hmm. loves to treat and we sort of have the doctor pool, you know, but, but we have people over here all the time, whether we're here or not, people just come and they use our facilities and they enjoy what we have wow. because we want just to love on them through our, through the gifts that God has given us. Mm-hmm. It's, I, my wife almost had to twist my arm to, to buy every house we've ever had or, or almost anything we have mm-hmm. because I've, I've always said, Oh, I don't want to look like I'm that classic, you know, doctor that has the, this or the, that, right. but God has always checked my spirit and said, I'm going to, I'm going to use that. I'm going to use that pool. I'm going to use that backyard so you can host your D group, which we do every week. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And when we, our kids have parties, they come over here. And so we can just love on their friends, you know, through giving them, you know, treats and parties and things like that. And we had a group of medical students that came over um, about once a month or so for a couple of years that just a group of students that we just wanted to mentor and we would oh. provide food for them and just hang out. And I would kind of do a little devotion with them. Um, but just give them a place of rest um, yeah. because as, as busy believers that are sometimes burning the candle on both ends, mm-hmm. you know, even when it's very early in the morning, it was still dark. Jesus got up, went off to a solitary place where he prayed. I mean, you right. need rest. And um, so we want to provide that for people. So I always sort of check it, you know, like, okay, is this purchase because I'm being a little bit flippant with my money or is this <laughs> something that I really think that God is leading me to do? And, and every single decision I think needs to be weighed with that. But, but that's what we want to do with it. Um, with sort of the position that we're in is be uh, like first Timothy says, be rich in good deeds. Like mm-hmm. that is my heart's cry. Um, and so use the money to be rich in good deeds. 
That's great. I think it all comes down to that heart posture, right? Yeah. Did you have anybody that uh, mentored you when you were going through the, there was, the residency um, and all that? Yeah. So when I was in med school. There was a guy who was our um, Sunday school teacher that was an OBGYN um, that just really showed me kind of that balance between faith and, and work um, and that it can be done and that right. hard times don't necessarily mean that you're doing something wrong. Yeah. Um, there are seasons in our training where, you know, there were lots of days I would leave in the morning and come back home and the kids were already in bed. And, um, and so it was hard. There was a lot of, you know, 100 hour weeks, 120 hour weeks, wow. um, you know, 48 hours straight of call and things like that. And, wow. and those, you have to do those things to be good at your job so you can take care of your, your patients, which God has also called you to do. Right. But, but the mentor sort of showed me, okay, when you're not doing work, you're at home mm. and, and sort of how to balance that. Yeah. Um, and there's a guy also in residency that was similar, but there haven't been many. There's just not a lot of people in academic medicine that are very open about their, their faith in Christ. Right. And so that was really one of the, one of the things that drew me to academics was I want to be that voice for Christ in, in yeah. academic medicine. So, man, that's cool. You are kind of being a, uh, you know, an outpost in that, <laughs> in that arena. Uh, man, there's a few ways I, I want to take the conversation. Let's, let's go down this road of what's it okay. like being in an academic setting, a scientific academic setting, which uh, is, is often seen as antithetical to faith, yeah. right? What's it like being a doctor of faith in that? And I always find it strange that science and faith clash, <laughs> um, yeah. which seems, seems strange to me, but yeah. what's it like in, in that environment? Yeah. Um, it's weird. You know, I mean, every, Every biochemistry and genetics lecture is going to throw the evolution bomb in there and things like that, you know. And so it was always funny to me. Again, it was really goes back to the heart because I would leave those lectures just amazed at the complexity of which God designed us, mm. you know, and the genetics and how things are. Right. It's amazing that anybody's body is healthy at all. They're so complex, you know. And so wow. always, not always, but I mean, so often I left with a feeling of, of just being at awe and who God is. And, and when I give lectures and I talk about money and I talk about burnout and, and being frustrated with your career, I always tell them like, you've got to know what your priorities are mm. for me. And I typically say for me, it's, it's God, it's my family. And then it's my job. Right. And so for me in an academic setting, if my job is third, I know that unless something crazy happens, I'm probably never going to be a president of our society. And I'm not going to have 150, 150 like published research papers mm because I'm just not going to put that time in because right. only one person can be husband and you know, dad to my family. Yeah. Even my faith supersedes that. So mm -hmm. there have to be sacrifices. And for me, it, they, they come if I, if I keep my priorities right, you know, my wife is sometimes quick to check me if I'm starting to get off balance, you know, but uh, <laughs> and the Holy Spirit is too, but, but it, it is hard. But what is so often sort of like accolades and things I haven't striven or strove for them as, hard, but I have found also that times that God gives them anyway, you know, like the, this whole financial course thing has really, um, gotten me a lot of notoriety and that's not why I started it, but God has used it, you know? So not that you want to search, seek God for what he can give you in that sort of way, but, but God has been very, very gracious to me to, to give me 
some awards and some accolades for my work, even while my job was still listed as third, if that makes sense, you know? Yeah, no, I've seen those accolades and, and they're impressive. Uh, and I'm sure we'll, we'll read some of those out during the intro or, or just after the end of this. Um, but when you lose your life, you find it, right? And right, it's, right. It's pretty, pretty neat. Um, you know, I want to transition kind of towards the, the fourth inning of our conversation and talk about the surgery part of okay your job and you know from my understanding and based on our conversations here before when we were recording a lot of what you do is uh cancer type um procedures and that's high high risk i mean you have yeah. people going through life-threatening diseases what's that like um you know operating in that environment yeah it's it's difficult and it you're right it is very very stressful and it's a lot of a lot of high emotion, you know, and that was probably the thing that I was the least prepared for in my job was um, I was real bad about carrying my patient's burdens um, in, a, in an unhealthy sort of way. I don't, I don't think I had good boundaries, which is another book that I read is <laughs> early on in my audible was uh, boundaries by uh, Gary cloud. Um, and so it's, it's difficult, you know, whenever you're telling somebody, okay, the biopsies came back, it's cancer. Right. But I, what I like being able to say is, the good news is those 14 years that I went through training that got me to where I can take care of this problem for you. Yeah. And I wanted to be that guy to say, God has given me the ability and the knowledge and the experience to, you don't have to go search around anymore. Like you can rest. I've got you, you know, and I will be able to take your operating room and I will take this cancer out and we'll, we'll walk you through this process. That's, that's why I'm here. That's what my job is. That's what God has called me to do. And, um, you know, I always tell patients that, um, I love them by oper by cutting on them, you know, which is sort of weird because, but that is my ministry. And right. yesterday I operated on a lady that had a bad problem and I prayed with her in pre-op holding and she just totally broke down crying because she's so nervous about the surgery, but yeah. it's like, this, this is my mission. This is why I'm here. And, and I've, I've got it from here. And, yeah. um, and so God is, I, I like that about my job of being able to, to take people who are very vulnerable, scary time in their life and say, okay, I, I, I can, I can deal with this, you know? Yeah, man, that's cool. And I, I mean, there's a lot of subtle um, parallels to people's jobs and in certain yeah. situations in life to scripture. But when it comes to medicine, I mean, Jesus is a great physician and it's not subtle. Right. It's, it's yeah. such a yeah. apparent uh, parallel. It's really cool. And talking yeah. about a, you know, unique kind of scary position that patients find themselves in. I broke my nose maybe two years ago and I'd never been in under anesthesia and they had to, you know, go and, and whack it over. And I remember the <laughs> nurses being like, what are they doing to him? And, and one of the nurses is like, Oh, he broke his nose. They have to like do this. And they didn't know I was listening and she goes, <laughs> Oh, gross. And I'm like, fantastic. Right. But I'm about to go under and yeah. I'm like, man, this is nerve wracking for me. I know this is like an outpatient procedure. Yeah. Yeah, but I was vulnerable there, and um, you know, it, to me, it was a big deal, and and it's kind of scary, and that's just on a small scale. So I yeah. know you've made it a practice so to ask to pray with mm -hmm. with patients, which is so cool. Do you do that with all the patients that come in? Yeah, and and you know, it's funny because it, you know, in an academic setting, we do a lot of teaching, and we have our residents do things, and so. Um, so I could show up, you know, at the, at the beginning while the residents already got them in the operating room and they're asleep and they're, mm -hmm. you know, prepped and ready. 
Uh, but I don't, I, I go up early and I see them still while they're in pre-op and talk to them and make sure they don't have any new questions or any new fears. Yeah. And then I pray with them and things like that. And, and so that, that carries. And I think it, it forms a pretty significant bond between me and the patient. That's, it's always one of those things where afterwards they'll a lot of times as they circle back, they'll, you know, in their post-op visit or whatever, they'll say, thank you so much for praying with me. I was very scared. I was going through this or had a family member that had this problem and it didn't turn out well. So I was very you know, anxious. And, and so God has, has used it a lot. Um, and it just, it provides just a connection. And I think people sometimes, um, particularly people of faith, uh, will, will trust me so much more when they know that God is guiding my hands. It just helps them know like, okay, I know God's got me, but when I know God's also got my surgeon, I'm like, God's double got me. You know, <laughs> So it just really helps them a lot. So yeah. I, I enjoy that aspect of what I can see people have like common faith. It's like, all right, this is, this is where the rubber meets the road, you know, so it's good. Yeah, fantastic. Uh, I've got one more question for you, and then I'll go into some, maybe some more fun and, and okay. rapid questions for you here right. to close us out. But what advice would you give high-earning or financially independent people about stewarding what God has given them? That's great. I, I would say, um, you know, what's funny is uh, I was thinking about, um, this earlier when I was giving my talk, you know, that, that phrase with uh, investing is like past performance is not an indicator of future return or whatever, you know, whatever that phrase is, they say. Oh, yeah. And I think that the same is true in our spiritual lives. And, and, and so what I mean by that is I think that every day we have to go and you go to the Holy Spirit and you, you go to God and say, God, what do you want me to do with my money today? And so mm-hmm. the answer to your question about being a steward, it's, it's just being open to what God calls because there are times when, I've kind of got these best, best laid plans of mice and men. And then God calls me to do something with my mind that totally disrupts whatever I had planned for it. Right. But just being open to spur the moment things that God calls us to do are ways that where we, we don't hold on too tightly um, mm. to our money. And it, it causes us every day to go back and be on our knees and say, God, what, what today, what do you have for me today? Do I keep going with that plan that I thought about yesterday? Mm. Or are you going to totally derail me? And have me go meet this financial need or this physical need or whatever. And so I would say that my word of advice for being a good steward is just to constantly be open to the Holy Spirit because it keeps us from, from planning too much and doing that James thing, you know, Mm -hmm. um, where we, we think that we know what's going on in the future and and we don't ask. And so, um, so that, that would be my recommendation is, is God desires to use people in all phases of life. You know, he has generals and he has, mid-level sergeants and he's got, you know, privates and, and some mm-hmm. people with their financial money or their generals and they have a lot of potential right. for influence and, and power. So make sure that we never get so high up to where we think, you know, oh, we're good now. And my, I know enough about God to where I can just sort of coast, but every day has to be a new day and every day has to be seeking what the spirit wants. Yeah. Fantastic. Um, let's jump into maybe some more fun or, or rapid fire questions and, right. uh, that come to mind. And this has become the faith first advisor uh, standing question that always okay. comes up at the end here. And I, I asked this and people are going to roll their eyes after, you know, five episodes of me asking this question and saying this, but I'll, I'll say it again. I think it's one of the best questions to get to know somebody. Okay. And that is you're on a road trip. All right. You know, you stop at a gas station and not some like sketchy gas station, but a Wawa, something like that, something good. You head inside. What are you picking up for your snacks at the gas station? Oh, awesome. Okay. 
So um, always a Diet Coke. I mean, that's a must. I got I got to go to the DC. <laughs> um, and then usually I'll get some sort of like uh, like chocolate bar of some. I really, nice. If I if calories weren't an issue, I'd go Twix. I'm all, like, that, right. That's my go-to. But if calories are an issue, you know, a little COVID-19 pounds sort of gained or whatever, then I usually go with some sort of like protein bar um, to kind of tide me over. But always Diet Coke regardless. Calories don't count. Twix, calories Love do it. count. Have some sort of protein bar. My wife would go chips hands down, chips hands down. She's a chip machine. (laughs) I'm more of a chocolate bar sort of a guy. (laughs) Good answer, man. The last uh, few people, and I'll call out uh, Adam. Adam Burt was an NHL player who was on, and then a a pastor, John, who uh, just recorded with, and they both said like beef jerky and and protein (laughs) bars and water, and I'm like, come on, come on. I I personally, Coke Zero and you know, Kit Kat or peanut M&Ms. And I said, yeah. we're going to get somebody with a little more fun uh, taste on here soon. So yeah. appreciate that. Oh, yeah. The middle <laughs> of the road would be like a, a Chex Mix. Man, I, the problem with me when yeah. I buy like Trail Mix is I eat the whole stinking bag, like top to bottom, yes. done. And so it's 10,000 calories later. I'm like, well, that's a great snack. You know? <laughs> that's so that's great. the middle of the road. Next question. It's something I'm interested in and very relevant to kind of that silly question there is, uh, what role do you think you work? You do a lot of cancer research and, and disease type stuff. What role do you think diet plays into um, diseases like that, processed food that we find ourselves eating? I'm just curious. Um, yeah. yeah, good question. That. So this, that's really hard to study, actually, because you know, our diets are so crazy, so diverse, and there's so much genetics and other environmental factors that go into all that. So trying to pin any one outcome specifically on diet is almost impossible to tease out because of genetics and all these other things. So all you can say is based on like large population studies, uh, which are fraught with, with, you know, biases and things. But, Mm -hmm. but the thought is that the the more like fried greasy and like red meat sort of thing, those Mm -hmm. are are prone to cause more uh, polyps, cancers, diverticulitis, things like that. Um, Higher the fiber, the more the sort of, you know, raw fruits and vegetables that is thought to be somewhat cancer protective and also protective for things like diverticulitis. But that being said, I had a 26 year old uh, that I saw in clinic recently that had a new diagnosis of rectal cancer. Mm. And I've got 80 year olds that have never had a problem with their colon that eat, you know, Big Macs every day their entire life, you know, so (laughs) there's definitely some genetics that play in there. Um, I've seen marathon runners would come in with, you know, new onset of weight loss, but I'm like, you're a marathon runner. We cat scan them and they've got, you know, stage four cancer. And so wow. it, it exercise is protective, but not, you can't say if you exercise and eat right, you'll never have a problem. It's, yeah. it's too much. Too yeah. many variable. Interesting. I, you know, I, I'd love to do a whole other podcast on, on stuff like <laughs> yeah. that. Cause it is so interesting. Yeah. Um, you know, two more questions for you. Um, sure. this is kind of a deep question, but I, I felt it on my heart to, to ask you this before we started. Somebody who just gets a cancer diagnosis, um, what's your advice to them? You know, so I, I, I try to reassure them like I did, uh, like I mentioned earlier, and just let them know, like, you know, some of these people just get bounced around, bounced around, bounced around, and, and never really find a home of a mm-hmm. doctor who's going to treat them. Um, so I, I let them know that this is why I'm here. Um, but also let them, let them know, you know, with praying with them beforehand and all that, that I've got a much bigger purpose in this. But really the hard conversations though, is whenever I can't cure it. Mm. And so I'll have people that'll say, when I tell them a new diagnosis of cancer or maybe like uncurable cancer, they'll say, well, I'm not going to claim it. And I'm like, well, you can claim it or not, but the truth is you got cancer, you know, and right. you're going to die from this cancer. Mm. And so walking them through that and letting them know, even 
in that terrible diagnosis that I hear them, that I want to still love on them, Mm -hmm. that there is a purpose in that. And every now and then I have, I'll give um, patients this book, John Piper that I mentioned earlier, he wrote a book called Don't Waste Your Cancer. Mm -hmm. Uh, His his book initially was Don't Waste Your Life. And then he got prostate cancer and came up with that. And so I'll give that to people a few times I know can sort of tolerate that kind of Kind of religious talk right. um, because there there's a purpose in that but you don't want to sound trite either right. you know like you don't want to say we got cancer god's got purpose in it like this isn't isn't a cliche deal like this is right. real you know right. and this right. is this is life altering and so mm. every every interaction is really me trying to feel like where are they are they in denial or do they really get it yeah. and oftentimes i think tears are a good thing because they are really like yes i understand what you're saying and this is bad but yeah. it's okay i've I've got, there's, I've got good news for you. There's can be a purpose in the bad, Um, but that's hard. Those are, those are very delicate conversations. Mm. Thanks for sharing that. I appreciate that. Uh, And then last question is, you know, we always end our podcast with this. What's God been teaching you these days? Maybe it's what you read this morning or in this season of life. What's he, he got on your heart lately. Um, So uh, this is, probably more than, than you would want to dive into at this point in the podcast, but we, um, and even in the uh, scope of practice, I think I may have even mentioned about, we have um, had an adopted son uh, who we uh, had for about three and a half years, felt very much led that that was what God had on us, mm-hmm. on our heart. And ever since we got him, it was, it was very difficult. He was a, in the foster care and we got him when he was five. He had had a pretty messed up background. Mm-hmm. And, um, and long story short, we, uh, we ultimately within the last six weeks actually had to dissolve the adoption. And so he had to go back into foster care. And that has been just like gut wrenching for my family over the last four years now. Mm. And so God has, the the God didn't answer the prayer that I prayed 10,000 times of God, please change our hearts Mm -hmm. to make this work. And so learning God's sovereignty you know, in unanswered prayers. And also I, and my family got emotionally and just physically and everything like depleted, like we never have before. Sure. And so now I'm, I'm able to be empathetic with my patients when they, when they say, I just can't do that. Like yeah. I get that now. Yeah. I get that for the first time. Like, cause there was, there we're sort of still in that season of we, we can't, we just can't like we emotionally, I can hardly get out of bed today. Mm. And so God has really taught me a lot more of, being compassionate and a lot more empathetic mm-hmm. and um and still trusting him whenever things are not good you know yeah, yeah. um so that, that's sort of the season we've been in almost in the last four years but but now wrestling with those questions of unanswered prayers is something that i feel like that we're still just seeing what what god has for us today and how yeah. what does healing look like i don't know mm-hmm. you know yeah man that's great and thanks for sharing that i think that uh, the listeners here are people who have walked through times like that or in the future will can fall back on on what you just said there so man dr mizell thank you this has been a ton of fun to to talk with you and come back man i i feel like i could i could talk with you for another hour or two on just uh, different things so yeah yeah well thank you thank you for the opportunity i've enjoyed it immensely i'm I'm excited to see what god's gonna do with this this is great thanks appreciate it absolutely Wow, what an episode, and a big thank you to Dr. Mizell. I already told Dr. Jason that uh, he had to come back and join us for another episode of the podcast. Uh, We'll also be back, guys, in two weeks with another episode. But in the meantime, again, to learn more about aligning your investing with your faith, 
email eric at shrumpw.com or visit our website at www.shrumpw.com. The content provided is for general information educational purposes only and should not be considered a recommendation of any particular strategy, investment product, or investing advice of any kind. Content is not intended to be and should not be construed as legal or tax advice and or legal opinion. Please consult a financial professional for your specific situation. Investing involves risk, including the loss of the entire principal. Past performance does not guarantee future results. The views and opinions expressed here are of the author and do not necessarily reflect the opinion of Spire Wealth Management, LLC, and its affiliates. Invest advisory services offered through Spire Wealth Management LLC and SEC Registered Investment Advisor. Securities offered through an affiliate Spire Securities LLC, a registered broker, dealer, and member of FINRA and SIPC.